Turn with me to Exodus 33, where we have the passage that the words from that gospel song come, comes from. Exodus 33, in the aftermath of the terrible iniquity of the making of the golden calf and the playing around it, Moses is holding communion with God. He asks the Lord in verse 18, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And in verse 19, the Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. And so, not long after that, Moses goes to meet God at the top of the mount, and we have the description of the Lord passing by him in his glory, beginning at verse 5 of chapter 34. And this is where we're going to be this evening for a second consecutive Sunday evening. Exodus 34 and verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's inerrant word. I want to first of all recover what we talked about last week by way of introduction to this passage. This glorious passage, which really is a Mount Everest in God's revelation in sacred scripture. This passage where we have the perfections of God enumerated for the first time. This passage which then forms the basis of countless other passages and psalms and prophecies and the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. This passage, which is so grand in the Old Testament, is the answer to a desperate man's 
call for the knowledge of God to be revealed to him. Moses was exasperated with the people of Israel. He had to have been so disappointed with them. And he shared in the fury of God over their making of that golden calf. His eyes must have flamed like fire when he cast down those tablets of stone. And when he ground that that calf to powder and made them drink it. And when he called to Levites to take up their swords. He was angry. He was disappointed. He was exasperated. And then he was exhausted after he interceded for these people for 40 days up on Mount Sinai. He pled with the Lord to show mercy to these people. You recall that the Lord had said that he was not going to destroy them. He relented of the threat to destroy them. But yet he did say that he was not going to go with them to Canaan, that he was going to send his angel instead, and this Moses could not stand. This this greatly disappointed and frightened Moses. And so he puts this tent outside the camp that he resorts to every day, and he holds communion with God in that little tent. And it says that the Lord talked to him in that little tent as a man speaks to his friend, spoke to him face to face. And in the midst of his pleadings, and in the midst of his crying out to God, when this man knew a need for multiplied grace and peace, and he had been taught by the Lord that grace and peace only comes through the knowledge of him, he had learned that lesson thousands of years before the apostle Peter penned it, He cries out, show me thy glory. And this is the answer to that desperate man's cry. Remember that when he said, show me thy glory, the Lord said, I will make my goodness pass before you. And so we're calling this the glory of God's goodness. The glory of God's goodness. What you and I need most is to increase in the knowledge of God. To, as Moses put it here, to see the glory of God. But lest you get the wrong impression about that need, we need to see the glory of God. How does God reveal His glory to Moses? Does he reveal it in awe-inspiring experiences? Does he reveal it in overwhelming emotions? No, he reveals his glory in words. He proclaims his glory when he makes his goodness pass before Moses. So when you, like Moses are placed into a position of really sensing your desperate need for grace and peace. When you know that you need a more thorough knowledge of God, when you hunger for seeing God's glory revealed, look to the Word of God. 
Stay your mind on Jehovah and what he has said and what he is like and what he has promised to do. Do like Moses did here. And that's what ministers multiplied grace and peace to the people of God in their times of trouble. The glory of God's goodness. Now, we already talked about the first half of verse 6. We had three points last week. We first of all thought together on the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord God. And we reminded each other that God's name assures us that who he has been, he forever will be. That he is unchanging, that he is sufficient, that he is self-existing and self-sustaining, that he is. And that's what the word Yahweh means, or Jehovah means. He is. And then he spoke of his perfection of merciful, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful. And that word merciful speaks to the compassion of God. The way his heart is moved over our misery. The way he is touched with the feeling of our infirmity. It's a parental term. It's used for the emotion that a mother feels for her infant. It's used for the emotion of a father who sees his prodigal returning a great far way off. And he has compassion on him. And he falls on his neck and kisses him. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate. And then there's the word gracious, which speaks to God's gift giving. He shows favor, and his favors are always undeserved and unmerited. In fact, he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. It is truly sovereign, unconditional grace. So we've seen his name, his compassion, his grace. So now we come to this perfection in the middle of verse 6, that he is long-suffering, long-suffering, slow to anger. It's the ability to be wronged and wronged and wronged and wronged again and to have the power to retaliate but to not retaliate, slow to anger. Think of the context here. Think of what God's people have done. And this is the first time in this context where God brings this out and he sets it before Moses. Moses I don't respond to people with a hair trigger. I am long-suffering. What happened at Sinai and God's furious response to the people when they built that golden calf and when they worshipped and played before that golden calf, when there was that response that, that spoke of his righteous wrath and there was that threat of severe punishment, don't get the wrong impression about God. He is actually slow to do that. That was not a hair trigger when he responded that way in chapter 32. It's 
an amazing perfection of God, slow to anger. You know, it's often the case with great people in the world, with rich and powerful people, that they're actually quite impatient and they're quite unforgiving. And they actually use that as one of their distinctions. They display themselves purposefully as being hard to please and quick to anger to make sure that everybody under them falls in line, toes the line, never really knows what to expect so that they behave themselves, so they show loyalty to the person in charge. The great people of the world are very often like that. They impress you with their ability to react immediately to things. But God says in Proverbs 19, the discretion of a man deferreth his anger. It is his glory to pass over a transgression. Have you ever known anyone like that? A person who's slow to react, slow to take offense, and quick to forgive. God says that's their glory because that's the way that God is. It's part of His glory to be slow to anger. Nahum in his prophecy against Nineveh says that the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. It's an interesting combination of perfections, isn't it? Slow to anger and great in power. He is long-suffering. Long-suffering. And then at the end of verse 6, we're going to take all of this in one fell swoop here. He is abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. Those three phrases actually go together. And the way that we know they go together is that the word goodness at the end of verse 6 and the word mercy at the beginning of verse 7, it's the same word. Abundant in goodness and truth, keeping goodness for thousands. It's the same word both times. That word goodness is that wonderful Old Testament word, loving kindness. We've discussed it often together. It speaks of God's steadfast love, His loyal, covenant-keeping faithfulness. The word speaks of one person who voluntarily obligates himself to look after and to care for another. He'll be loyal. He'll be steadfast in his love. He will never abandon. He will be zealous about protecting and defending. And the word has to do with God's passion to keep covenant. The way that he loves to display loyalty. It isn't that he finds himself bound to a covenant that now he must begrudgingly keep because of the frailty or the iniquity of these people that he's entered into an agreement with. 
He doesn't grudgingly fulfill his covenant. He loves to keep his covenant with his people. It's loving kindness. It's steadfast love. The way the word is often explained is loyalty. Psalm 23, surely goodness and this word, mercy, will follow me all the days of my life. Follow me. The word follow there in Psalm 23 is actually a word used in the book of the Kings for the pursuit of a hostile army. God's loyalty pursuing me wherever I go. I go off the path. I veer off through the hedges. He's pursuing me. His is a love that will not let me go. Loving kindness. Steadfast, loyal love. And all through the Psalms, you have this perfection repeated. His mercy is everlasting. Why didn't he give up on you a long time ago? How can he keep on defending you? God has had every opportunity and incentive to walk away from you and to give up on you, and he hasn't. How many invitations have you spurned? How many presumptuous sins have you committed? How much have you sinned against the prayers of your mother? How often have you been ungrateful and complaining, and you've even blamed God for your plight? And he keeps opening his hand to give you. He does that because in Christ he has bound himself in covenant to you. So the real issue isn't you, the real issue is Christ. Remember, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. The issue isn't your fallenness, it's, it's to make conspicuous his glory as a God whose glory it is to pass by the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage and to not retain his anger forever because he delights in this. He delights in loving kindnesses. So where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. He's a merciful, faithful, loyal God. He's abundant in goodness, that's the word for loving kindness, and he's abundant in truth. And in this context, the word truth, buried between those two words for loving kindness, for loyal love, is the truth here speaking about the fact that God is not going to deceive you. I mean, it's true, he's not going to deceive you, but that's not the emphasis of the word here. The emphasis, when he's called abundant in truth, is on his faithfulness, his faithfulness. When, when we say of someone, that person is true, we're not necessarily talking about, well, they're not a liar. What we're saying is they're reliable, they're faithful, they're loyal. You can count on him. He's true. And that's how God is, abundant in truth, abundant in faithfulness. 
And 30 times at least in the Old Testament, the word for loving kindness and the word for faithfulness, this word, is bound together. Steadfast love and faithfulness. And he's abundant in these perfections, friends. Abundant. And that's why God can say to the wicked that if they will turn, he will abundantly pardon. And that's why Jesus promised that if we will come to him, that we will have life and that we will have it more abundantly. And that's how Paul can say that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound because it's abundant mercy and truth. And Paul even goes as far as to say that when it comes to the chiefest of sinners, the grace of our Lord is exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think because he's abundant in goodness and truth. And verse 7 goes on to say that he does this for thousands. He keeps loving kindness. He keeps faithfulness for thousands. And there's two ways of taking that. You could say thousands as in many, many people right now. You see, this is not a rare thing. It's not like you have to be an unusual believer living at some height of piety. It's not like you have to be living some sort of Moses-type existence in order for God to be loyal and and show loving kindness to you. He keeps mercy for thousands, not just Moses's. He keeps mercy for thousands. It is not a rare thing. But probably the more, even the more accurate explanation of this phrase, he keeps mercy for thousands, is that he's talking about thousands of generations. You, your children, their children, their children, all the way down to several thousand generations. He keeps loving kindness for thousands of generations. Do you know how many generations they estimate have been since Adam until now? 85. 85. So what's being communicated when he says he keeps mercy for thousands of generations? Eternity is being communicated which is just what so many other texts say about God's loving kindness. Psalm 100, for the Lord is good. His mercy, his loving kindness is everlasting. And his truth, his faithfulness endures to all generations. Psalm 136 says it 26 times. His mercy endureth forever. He keeps loving kindness for thousands. Abundant in loving kindness and faithfulness, keeping loving kindness for thousands. 
All right, but what does he do about sin? Because of what benefit is it to me to hear of these heartwarming perfections of the Lord, that he's a compassionate and that he's gracious and that he abounds in loving kindness. What good is it if there's no benefit to me personally, if my sin remains a barrier between me and God? What does he do about my sin? Well, he declares in verse 7, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And I don't think that we can begin to appreciate and to be humbled by the Lord's goodness revealed in that statement unless we understand something of what he has singled out in these three words for sin. He didn't just say sin. He said iniquity and transgression and sin. Three words. Two of those words I explained just last Sunday morning when we were focusing on the thoroughness of God's pardon from Jeremiah 50. That word sin means to miss the mark. The book of Judges describes 700 left-handed men from the tribe of Benjamin who were so good at archery that, or at slinging, at slinging stones that when they would sling the stone, they would not ever do this. They would not ever miss. They would never miss the mark. And the word iniquity we talked about too last week. It's the twisted perversity of sin. Iniquity is gross wickedness. It's pronounced. It's conspicuous. It's disgusting. And it also speaks of the consequences of sin. The Bible talks about people bearing their iniquity. And to those two familiar words, sin, missing the mark, and iniquity, the twistedness and the consequences of sin, you have this word added, the word transgression which speaks to the willfulness of the rebellion. The very English word, transgress, literally means to go beyond the bounds. Transgress. Probably the best cross-reference to this word is in the opening verses of the prophecy of Isaiah where the Lord says, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. And that's the word, rebelled. Transgression. Transgression is rebellion. Sometimes the word is translated trespass in the Old Testament. You know, you know what trespassing is. It's a sign. It says no trespassing. And you deliberately cross the line anyway. You go beyond the bound. And you do it willfully. And you do it deliberately. And you do it against knowledge and against light. And you and I are loaded with these sins and iniquities and transgressions. Sins of disposition and attitude. We are constantly missing the mark. 
Sins where we twist and pervert God's good gifts. Sins where we intentionally and with a high hand rebel against known commandments of God. And the incredible thing in this passage is, listen, listen to how this God is prepared to deal with those things. He says, he forgives them. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The Old Testament word forgiveness is a beautiful word. It literally has to do with lifting something off and up and off. Lifting something up and off and then transferring it to another. It means to lift off and to carry away. To lift off and to carry away. Whenever you have the words in the Old Testament, lift up your eyes. It's this word for forgiveness. You think of sin as a heavy burden. Iniquities. People bear their iniquities. And God is prepared to take hold of that burden to lift it off your soul, to bear it away. He enables you to stand and you're no longer loaded down with that guilt and with the expectation of punishment. You no longer have the spirit of bondage again to fear. And in this verse, why would he do that? This is where the linkage comes in with everything we noted before. This is linked with his loving kindness. It's because of his loving kindness, because of his faithfulness, that he is prepared to do that. He's prepared to lift up and carry away your iniquities and your sins and your transgressions. Remember Psalm 51? Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy Loving kindness, that word is in this passage. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, that word is in this passage. Blot out my transgressions, that word is in this passage. Wash me throughly from my iniquity, that word is in this passage. Cleanse me from my sin, that word is in this passage. There they are, all three words for sin, and they're washed, and they're cleansed, and they're blotted out. He forgives. The same thing occurs in Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity and in whose spirit there is no guile. There it is again. All three words for sin. And it's not imputed. It's covered. Completely covered. It's forgiven. Lifted off carried away. The Lord is prepared to forgive. And then comes this final section in the middle of verse 7. And at first glance, this appears to contradict everything he said. And that will by no means clear the guilty. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. Well, so much for forgiveness then, huh? So much for compassion and grace and steadfast love and long-suffering. I'm guilty, and that says he doesn't clear the guilty. It sounds like he actually visits it on successive generations. So what are we going to do with that? He will no wise clear the guilty. We'll pay very close attention to verse 7. I mean, look at it here with me. Put your finger on the middle of the verse. And that will by no means clear. Now look at that. The next two words are in italics. And words in italics mean that they're supplied by the translator. Did God say, He does not clear guilty people? It's not what he says. He just says, I will no wise clear. It's not, he's not saying, I always punish the guilty party. What he's saying is, I don't leave what was done unpunished. You see, it's right in the middle of words for sin. There are forgiving, iniquity, transgression, and sin. I will no wise clear, but I'll visit the iniquity. It's sandwiched in between words of sin. He's not talking about people, he's talking about the sin. The sin always gets punished. He doesn't allow the sin to go unpunished. And that's true, isn't it? That's true. He does not allow the sin to go unpunished. It does get punished. That's what divine justice requires. Every sin, every iniquity, every transgression, it gets punished. So how does he punish it if he doesn't punish the person who's guilty of it? And you know the answer to that question. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. In Exodus or in Leviticus 16, God is going to tell Moses that there's going to be a day every year called the Day of Atonement. That on that day that there will be two goats chosen. Aaron the high priest is to take one of those goats and he's to lay his hands on the goat as the high priest and he is to confess over the goat. He's to confess the iniquities of the people, the transgressions of the people, the sin of the people, and is to release that goat into the wilderness, carried off a day's journey by a fit man. And the goat goes away, and it bears away those transgressions and iniquities and sins. And then the other goat is slain, and its blood is shed as a satisfaction of God's righteous wrath, as a propitiation. And then, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And when his son came to adulthood, 
the forerunner who was sent to announce him, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. And the New Testament says the transaction works just like this. It was the just for the unjust. And God, in his infinite wisdom, devised a way to punish, but to not have to punish the guilty party. To punish the innocent party instead, the just for the unjust. And in that way, God forgives sin. And the sin never goes unpunished. He does not clear. He does not allow the sin to go unpunished. And that is the gospel. God justifying and just at the same time. Forgiving and not clearing at the same time. And then lastly in verse 7, God declares that he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. That does not mean that God punishes innocent people for the sins of their fathers. Israel often accused God of that. At the time of the exile, they had this proverb that they would derisively repeat to one another. They said, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And they accused God of injustice for all these terrible things happening to them because of the sins of their forefathers. And in the prophets, God actually forbids Israel from speaking that proverb one to another because it's not accurate. That generation of Israelites was just as guilty of iniquity as their fathers were. They weren't being unjustly punished. Perhaps you remember the same phrase in the Ten Commandments. The phrase goes like this in the Ten Commandments. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. That's the idea. We're not talking about innocent third and fourth generations. We're talking about generations that persist and continue in the idolatry and hatred of God of their forefathers. The Bible does describe God as having a cup. And over the years and over the generations, that cup is filled up with His just and His holy wrath. And finally, it is poured out on a particular generation. But when it is poured out on that particular generation, God is visiting the sins of all those previous generations of God-haters on the current living God-haters. 
And I think that we would agree that we're seeing something of that in our society today. The open rot of our culture, the utter confusion and transgressiveness of the world. Romans 1 tells us that God gives over a culture to a reprobate mind. And the kinds of things that we're seeing today in entertainment and in media and in the schools and the so-called practice of medicine, the breakdown of the home entirely, all of this was sown in the cultural revolution of the 1960s, wasn't it? And it's a consequence of generations of people rejecting the wisdom and the ways of God. And we're being visited in this country with the consequences. But isn't it reflective of the glory of God's goodness? That he visits iniquity to three and four generations, but he keeps mercy for thousands of generations. Isn't that indicative of the heart of God? John Owen, the Puritan, commented, when God solemnly declared his name, that we might know and fear him, he does it by an enumeration of those properties which may convince us of his compassion and forbearance And not until the close of all does he make any mention of his severity. I mean, the revelation is not symmetrical, is it? Which tells you something about the heart of God. When Moses was desperate for a sight of God's glory, God made all his goodness pass before him. This is the glory of God's goodness. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abundant in loving kindness and faithfulness. He keeps that loving kindness to thousands of generations. He forgives the grossest of sins, but he does so all the while retaining his divine justice and satisfying his wrath. And you know, all of this culminates in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to do in flesh and blood what God spoke in Exodus 34. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is the glory of God's goodness. Let's seek him together now. Let's pray.
our merciful Father in heaven, how we praise Thee for the glory of Your goodness revealed in this precious passage of Scripture. Oh Lord, we ask that You would help us to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray that no matter our circumstances, and no matter our feelings, and no matter what we have done in sin, that we would not be cool toward you, but that we would draw near, that we would claim the truth of this text, that we would make use of the glory of your goodness and receive grace to help in our time of need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.